0: Thanks, Max, and Wayne. What a beautiful start to the morning, and um, yeah, the morning star came and stood over the house. That's what the uh, that's what the gospels say of the of the birth of Christ. So that's interesting. So thanks for that star meditation. And oh, interesting, the first picture we had of the earth was on December 24th. What is that day? Now, sometimes you can't make this stuff up, you know? Um, I want to explore the, what I would call the archetypal terrain, the archetypal terrain meaning the patterns, the great patterns, in this question that I'd like us to hold, which is, what can the birth of Christ teach us in a post-religious world? What can the birth of Christ teach us in the post religious world? And really, this is my final contribution to the Great Questions series that we've been in. And there are a couple questions behind this question, which is what do you mean by religious? (laughs) What do you mean by post religious? I don't know. I'm not going to get into that right now. I'm going to take it in the simple sense of well, um, much of modern life is oriented around the economy and around being an individual and not so much around the traditional frames of religion. In that sense, it's a post-religious world. Um, Even some of the stories and theologies are kind of slipping through our fingers, for better or worse. Few of us know the stories really anymore. And, And yet, every time this time of year comes around, it awakens something, and people start to feel, shouldn't we be doing something around this time of year? even if they don't consider themselves to be very religious. Sometimes it's nostalgia, we could wonder, or sometimes it's something else. To me, it's something like the night sky and the pull of the stars and the changing of the seasons and the the darkness of, of, of this time of year that awakens a certain pattern deep in the soul, that awakens a certain kind of longing. And... There's something unique about the story of Christ. It's funny that you could um, have an entire economic engine of junk running the world right now, and it still can't um, eliminate or push out the mystery of the birth of an infant into a kind of strange and dark world. So you can have all the, you know... I don't know what, I've sort of, I don't know what the cool latest item is that people want. I've forgotten. It used to be like, you know, the iPhone or something. Now there's so many of them. I've lost numbers, lost count. But even all that fervor, what's next, what's next, What what's next, the symbol and the image of Christ sort of sits in the background of that. Maybe with a little question mark. So that's what I want to try to try to do today to wrestle with the question of what can the birth of Christ teach us in a post-religious world. And um, and uh, I want to start in kind of an unusual place here with Otto Rank, who's, who is Freud's assistant. So you can already see the direction I'm going, all right? So Otto Rank is Freud's assistant, and he started... Um, identifying certain patterns around what he called the uh, infant hero myths, the infant hero myths. And I want to say something about the word myth because I've said it before in the standing right here, I'm sure, but some, some version of what I'm about to say. A myth is a way of telling the truth. Right? That's a simple way of saying it. It's a mythopoetic way of telling the truth. It's not a lie. Or if you want to think about it as a lie, here's a... Here's a line from, um, hold on, I'm going into my library. Um, yeah, oh no, exactly. It's probably like Wayne's library. You know, I'll just let that go. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll just give you the, the quote. Um, a myth is a series of lies that tells the truth. Okay, so when you hear the word myth, it, it's very important to say, what's true here? What's true in terms of the, of the pattern of the energy, of the way the story is constellated. What's true psychologically would be a modern way of saying it. You know, myths were the precursors to what we would call depth psychology. It was telling us the truth about what it means to be a human being and what it means to grow up and the patterns and the things that happen to us um, in a kind of fantastical way that captures people and you want to pass it on. And so one question you would ask, you could ask is, is the Bible a series of myths? And the short answer to that is no and yes. It's not a classic myth in the sense of, um, in the traditional sense of it. It's a kind of a combination of what we would think of as history and storytelling and a little bit of theology and agenda and, and myth in the sense of pattern. And that's true of the story of, Jesus, of the birth of Jesus. It's very interesting because it emerges a little bit later. I don't want to go into a whole historical, critical thing here. Um, that was much of my life, as you probably know. And uh, But I will say, the this, this stories emerge a little later. It's not really part of the teachings of Jesus. It's not like he's like, hey, before I begin the Sermon on the Mount, let me tell you about Bethlehem, you know. It's like it's like wasn't a part of his own storytelling. It was, wasn't a part of even the narrative that seems to be from the Gospels of why you should listen to this guy. It emerges later. It emerges later. And part of the reason why it emerges is because of what Otto Rank is calling the infant hero myths. If you have a hero, you want to ask, how do we know they're a hero? Well, We have to check out their infancy stories to see if anything special is stirred up, to see if any stars appear, to see if there's a certain alignment in the universe that is helping bring forth what essentially is um, um, a vessel of change, would be one way of saying it. Okay, there are five five patterns. And I'm going to riff on these a little bit. But here are the five patterns of the infant hero myth, which I'm sure you were thinking about this morning. Number one, the infant has divine or noble parents. Okay, Divine, noble parents. Or the parent is barren, the mother is barren in some way, and there's nothing that can be done about it. Or she's a virgin. That's pattern number one. So the infant has some kind of divine... um, cord or thread that connects it to some sort of larger story. So, do we find that in the story of Jesus? Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's not a surprise. If you're familiar with infant hero myths, you wouldn't be like, oh my, you've you got to be kidding me. You would say, okay, this fits the pattern. And part of you inside would say, okay, maybe this is something that is worth paying attention to. Right? It's not just a normal, uh, the, the, the parent situation is not just ordinary, there's something extraordinary about it that makes us want to pay attention. By the way, the, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, is filled with these kinds of stories. I mean, the the um, Abraham and, and Sarah, Sarah is barren, she's too old to have children, and that's what makes it an infant hero myth, is that she can't have children, and so without some kind of uh, special circumstance or divine intervention that wakes, wakes us up to the possibility of something new, then History remains kind of flat. That's stage one. Stage two, that the birth of this child is accompanied by signs and prophecies, and usually under the anxiety of a ruling king. So, signs, prophecies, wonders. And you find that with the Jesus story. You've got a star that appears that comes to rest over the house. And this is all very symbolic language. I mean, I'm, I think most of us in our imagination as kids were like, Wait, there was like a burning thing that went across the star. Why, why weren't other people like, what is that? You know? And then it stops over a house. When was the last time you saw a star stop over the house? You know. I mean, So it, it's uh, a little more mysterious than that and symbolic. And, um, of course, you have magi, and they're reading the night sky. And, and maybe you know this, but the night sky is divided into houses in terms of the, the zodiac. So that's one uh, way of entering the story, but I, don't, I digress. So signs and prophecies, like, hey, this is special, this is unique. And that's partly what you have in the story of Matthew and Luke, a kind of like announcement of things and under the anxiety of a ruling king. And that's exactly what you have in both stories. You have the anxiety of Caesar in in Luke. Luke is Greek, so he's more concerned about the empire. And the Roman Empire was uh, a bit of a shady place you know something like particularly in this part of the world 70% taxation you know which i'm sure you would be all for you know so it's 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 heavy handed and and it's and it's done with with force with power and with um military might so uh that's that's the roman empire and and you have the jewish empire these are these are slightly different things it gets very complicated which i won't get into but herod is a, he's an autonomous Jewish king. He's actually not under the Roman Empire, so it makes it a little bit confusing because the story says they have to go to be accounted in a census, but technically they're not a part of the Roman Empire, so you don't have a census over something that's not a part of the Roman Empire, which is true under the reign of Herod the Great. He's an autonomous Jewish king. He's the first Jewish king that has full authority and autonomy over the Jewish people since King David. So Herod's a big deal, and Jesus is born under that kind of messianic figure, king-like figure, and he's anxious about it. So he says, well, um, stage three enters. The infant is exposed to die. The infant is exposed to die or exposed to death in some way um, or is surrendered to the sea or escapes often through warnings or dreams. So the king or the ruling class in the infant hero myths tries to kill or, you know, eliminate this baby, or, or sometimes the parents are very anxious and they try to get rid of the baby. That happens in the Oedipus story because um, it's announced that this a prophecy, a sign, is announced that this baby, this infant, is going to grow up and kill his father and marry his mother. And the parents are like, no that doesn't seem like a good idea. So they expose the baby to die and then the baby's rescued and so forth. That's the Oedipus story or part of it. Um, or surrender to the sea or to a body of water that you have with Moses born under Pharaoh and with, with, with kind of uh, this wondrous birth and then put into the sea, into the ark, that's the word in Hebrew, and floated down the Nile. And then he's rescued and saved and These kinds of things. This is part of the hero infant myth, stage three. Stage four, I already said, the infant is rescued. So do you have this in the Jesus story? You have Herod saying, I'm going to kill all the the boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, and off, um, Jesus goes to Egypt to be saved or rescued, warned through dreams and so forth. so the infant is rescued sometimes by animals, sometimes by fishermen, sometimes by usually humble people in some way. And then stage five is the hero youth returns to overthrow the father. That's, that's usually what happens, over, overthrows the father or the kingdom or the empire or the ruling class um, and, and renews the community. That's the most important part. So that's the setup. The gospel writers were, were playing with these patterns. And how much is historical and how much is not, we don't know. I mean, I could go on all kinds of facts and give you, you know, this probably is and this isn't and so forth and so on. It doesn't matter. That's much more of the contemporary scientific mind, uh, which was not around in the ancient world. They were much more interested in what is this an image of. It's an image of the miraculous birth of a human being coming in to overthrow the empire to overthrow the ruling class, to overthrow the father, to renew the community because they're stuck in some way. And when a community is stuck, how does that community get unstuck? Through birth. That's how the community gets unstuck. Through the birth of something new, the emergence of something new, the emergence of a kind of new consciousness that has to come into being within the stuckness of a certain culture or community. So you ask, I might ask, What can the birth of Christ teach us in a post-religious world? Well, we could start to wonder things like, well, are we stuck? (laughs) Do we need the emergence of something new? And how does that come into being? How does the emergence of a new kind of consciousness come into being? Does it come into being through the ruling class? I'm just saying through, if you take the ancient myth as an archetype, does it come through the mainstream or what is known or how things work? No, the story says it slips in the back door. That's how it comes in. And it comes in quietly and kind of mysteriously and subtly and innocently, and animals are present, and it's very easily threatened. Am I making sense? So part of my answer to the question, or maybe I should just put it in the form of the statement. I think one reason why the Christ story, the birth of Christ isn't going to go away anytime soon, even in a post-religious world, is because it awakens a certain kind of longing for the birth of something new, for the birth of a new kind of consciousness, especially when things are not working very well, especially when there's oppression that's happening, especially when there's, um, when society is not structured in a kind of fair way or equitable way. A kind of longing awakens, and the, the Christ story is pointing to that. So that's what's happening on one level. I want to read you something from uh, the bulletin here. This is from a, a book by Donald Calshed called um, Trauma and the Soul. And this I find, at least in my view, the most com- compelling and frankly quite new way for me to at least think about the Christ story, or the birth story of Jesus here. Just notice his words. We all carry in our inmost selves a sacred core. Now stop. All right, stop here. And ask yourself, do I, do I believe this to be true? Um, or do I want this to be true? And if you've ever had any children or grandchildren, what's my experience with this as a possibility? Listen to it again. We all carry in our inmost selves a sacred core of potential wholeness or aliveness, or creativity, and that this radiant center wants to unfold and realize itself through the particularities of our unique individual lives. I want to read it again because I want you to hear it. We all carry in our inmost selves a sacred core of potential wholeness or aliveness or creativity. And that this radiant center wants to unfold and realize itself through the particularities of our individual, of our unique individual lives, is the first part of a two stage drama. Now, this is like, um, uh, (laughs) it's kind of a silly thing to do right now. I want you to look around. In, in this room, at other people, not just like at random stuff in here. <laughs> like, oh, speaker, oh, we need to raise money, okay. Uh, actually, you should look at that a few times, and then, all right, we need to, we need to raise, finish raising money so we can uh, <coughs> meet our budget this year. But now look at people, look at people, and, and wonder to yourself, does this person have a radiant center of wholeness, aliveness, and creativity that wants to be born in the world? <laughs> don't look at me, look, look around. That's an unusual way of thinking about the world. And it's the first part of a two-stage drama, Kyle Shedd says. And there's something powerful, I already start to make connections here, between the Christ story, the birth of Christ, and what he's saying here. Stage one of the drama, listen to it. A sacred core of potential wholeness or aliveness, or creativity, and that this radiant center wants to unfold and realize itself through the particularities of our unique individual lives. You know what you call that in Christian theology? The incarnation, in fleshing something. And is that true of human beings? I mean, what do you mean? After all, at C3, Here, here's one of our values. Um, common humanity that we believe in, I'll just put it in this kind of language, in the wholeness, aliveness, creativity, and radiant center of every human being. So this is much more challenging to um, live out than it is to mentally assent to. And the story is poking around in that because particularly when society is structured to favor certain human beings and not other ones, one conclusion you can draw is only certain people have a radiant center of aliveness and creativity that needs to be protected. The rest, we don't have to worry about. Okay. Let's keep going. This unfolding tendency conspiring toward the full realization of one's personhood is often represented as a child or sometimes as an animal or other living being. So the great stories and myths, like the hero infant myth, like the Gospels, like other myths that have animals in them, a lot of children's books are playing with these themes accidentally, you know, well, sort of a combination of on purpose and, and, and accidentally. So, some sort of innocence, some sort of innocent, wondrous birth. Some, And you find this in dreams, which I don't want to go into a whole thing about dreams right now. I'll keep reading. Often, this child has some sac- has something sacred or divine about it, born, quote, between the worlds, which you have in the Christ story. And then there is a turn or a twist. Notice what he's saying about the way the soul, we might say, enters the world. Then there is a second act to the play, namely the idea that trauma interrupts this unfolding of personality by foreclosing the transitional space through which the vital spark is actualized. And that this interruption of human development can trigger a system in the psyche that attacks and tries to kill the emerging child. Can you hear the relationship between what Kalshed is saying about the psyche and its defense systems and what Otto Rank was talking about with the hero narratives and with the Christ story? That there's a kind of subtle and sacred potentiality of wholeness that is born, that the infant Represents, and I'll just translate, that sits at the core, the seat of your being. You are that innocent and precious and whole on one level. Yet, we're born into a kind of strange world. And the second part of the stage is an attack on that innocence, on that creativity, on that sacredness, on that uh, potential radiant core. And what does that look like? It looks like a king trying to kill all the infants two years old and younger. That's what it looks like. That can be externalized or internalized. How many of you, please don't raise your hands, but grew up in a, in, in, a, in a household where you felt some of your own radiant core was cut off by your own parents or grew up in a culture or a religious culture or environment that tried to eliminate on one level, that kind of innocence and preciousness or wild creativity. You don't belong in one way, shape, or form. That's the second part of a two-stage drama, Kalshed is saying. He calls that trauma, you know. And by trauma, we'll just use a very simple definition. Life gives us more than we can handle psychologically and spiritually. And sometimes... That's a lot for some people, and sometimes it comes in small doses, but it comes. You experienced more in your life, especially as a young person, than you were equipped to handle. So what happens, notice what he says. Actually, I'll start again with the... Then there is a second act to the play. Then there is a second act to the play, namely the idea that trauma interrupts this unfolding of personality by foreclosing the transitional space through which the vital spark is actualized and that this interruption of human development can trigger a system in the psyche that attacks and tries to kill the emerging child. These are the defense forces that come in and say, you'll never be wounded like this again. Protect yourself. Put a barrier between you and the world, between you and the other, between you and nature, between you and, and, and those, the people that have come into your life. It's a self-care system. Because our own radiant innocence can be easily wounded. And the system comes in and says, never again. This effort to kill the soul child is not usually an effort to annihilate it altogether, but to eliminate consciousness of it, and actually, in the final analysis, save it. So it tries to push down, we call this, it's hard to give a talk about this without a conversation, but this is what we call, what some people will call, inner child work, where that inner child, that precious, innocent core, is separated from our conscious awareness. And it takes a lot of work to, to, to contact that vital spark again. But it's tucked away, sort of like Christ being taken to Egypt or Moses being put into the basket or in the Zeus narrative. Um, what does Zeus's mother do? Um, Kronos, the father of Zeus, eats his own children. Okay, Lovely story. That's what time is like. <laughs> That's where we get chronological time. It eats children. So, um, and we all know that, you know, (laughs) my back hurts. It's just Kronos eating me. Okay, so slowly time eats us. But anyway, in the Zeus Zeus narrative, um, Zeus's mother takes Zeus and hides him and wraps a stone in swaddling clothes to fool Kronos. So Kronos eats a stone instead. It's too good. Anyway, this is that effort... um, to eliminate it from consciousness and to protect it in the end. Instead of annihilation, we see, this is the final sentence, we see in dreams that the child has gone into exile. We would say it's gone into the unconscious, where it lives in suspended animation until some future time when it can reemerge. He's saying this two-stage drama in the Christ story, if I can translate, the innocence and preciousness and the act of the world to eliminate that kind of precious possibility of wholeness, the forces that come in and cut that off, he's saying that's what happens in the soul. That's what happens in life. That's what happens to you. You too have a radiant center. And there are forces both internal and external that come in and try to cut us off from that reality, from that precious core. And if we think about society at large, here's a question we might answer. What are the forces right now at work in the world that come in and want to cut our children off from their own radiant center, from their own radiant core, from their own possibility of wholeness, because they're there, they're present. That's what the great metadramas are saying. And part of healing and restoration is recontact again with, I'll just give you the image as it comes to us in symbol form, the Christ child. So I'll just interpret why I don't think the image of Christ in the nativity is going to go away anytime soon. It's because if we just take your thinking ego mind and all of your ideas and abstractions and knowledge and set it aside for a moment, it awakens a connection with your own radiant center. That's what it does. You are the child wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. Your children or your grandchildren or your nephews or your nieces, their own radiant center is wrapped in swaddling clothes and in a manger. And the only people who recognize it are the animals and the shepherds who have no power and some strange magicians who read the night sky, about the only ones that recognize it. Nobody else does. And that's what the world is like. That's the kind of world we're born into. And in some ways... The noble act is to protect that kind of innocent, radiant core from too much damage, too much Herodian influences that come in that want to cut that down and denigrate it and mock it. Yeah, you know line from the Psalms? Um, I think it's like Psalm 1, do not sit in the seat of mockers. You ever heard that line? Do not sit in the seat. Well, now you have. Do not sit in the seat of mockers. It's that, that kind of bitter mockery, otherwise known as political parties. <laughs> it carries with it, psychologically, a sword that's like the Herodian sword that cuts off. And where does it cut most deeply? Our own radiant center. And sometimes that own radiant center has to go into hiding for a while. Has to be put in a little arc and sent down the river or kept from consciousness. Because too much consciousness around our own vulnerability, when we can't yet handle it, is too much. It's too much. So, what am I saying? I'm not sure exactly. What can the birth of Christ teach us in a post-religious world? I think, in part, I would say, it teaches us something about human nature and about the preciousness of humanity and about our own possibilities, And it also teaches us something about there are forces in our own psyches and in the larger world that try to keep us from that and cut that down and mock that and eliminate it and divide the world up. And the miracle of the story is something like, and Christ is born anyway into that world. Born anyway into a world of trouble. I used to think about that like, I mean, if you take the story very literally, God says, okay, now it's time for me to get involved in the human story in a very direct way, and I'm going to, I guess, I'm going to incarnate here and, and come, come into being in this way. But that seems like a, a very vulnerable way of going, like one fever ends the whole project. Really, especially in the ancient world, where are you going to go, you know? Jesus didn't have his COVID-19 vaccine, you know? So I'm just saying it's a very, very vulnerable act. And, it's, and I think the story is trying to say theologically something like that's the way the divine enters the world, vulnerably, subtly, innocently, just around the corner from all like the fanfare and the busyness and the inn. You know, like in the story, there's no room in the inn. It's like kinda like Wayne's library, it's like two all over the place, or my library, you know, it's like jam full of things and and your 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 mental library is like that and the way you organize your life and and then something of the divine, something of the subtle and the sacred enters anyway, you know, but around the corner and in a cave and quietly and subtly. Coming in with some Jung here. The archetype of the child has to do with wonder of all beginnings. The archetype pattern of the child has to do with the wonder of all beginnings. Don't you want to live with that kind of wonder and possibility? What's the alternative? Well, cynicism, mockery, derision, suspicion, anger, repression, violence, destruction. The archetype of the child has to do with the wonder of all beginnings and the wonder of all beginning again, which is why we celebrate in one way, shape, or form the story of Christ, whether you're doing it consciously or not, every year, because it's a beginning again. It's the darkness seeming to win and the longing for light. That's the seasonal time we're in. The archetype of the child has to do with wonder of all beginnings and the wonder of all beginning again. We are led by it to imagine being in the world as on the first day of creation. Seeing the world for the first time. That's what the story has to teach us, I think. That we carry that kind of radiant possibility to see the world as, as possible and as new, like it's the first day of creation. This child the quotations from Jung, is born out of the womb of the unconscious, which we won't go into right now, but out of the womb of the unconscious, the depths, begotten out of the depths of human nature, or rather, out of living nature, capital N, herself. Thanks for listening.